the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Thursday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. Glad to have you with us. Today we're going to talk with Barb Roos. She is the author of Winning the Worry Battle, Life Lessons from the Book of Joshua. Looking forward to talking with her later this hour. Now, I don't know about you, but it's only Thursday. It's been a short week for those of us who had the uh, the joy of celebrating Memorial Day away from our places of work. But I'm exhausted. I feel like we've already worked a week and a half. I don't know what it is about the short week, but it just kind of throws everything off. But tomorrow's Friday, so we're looking forward to uh, lightening up uh, on Friday. And uh, maybe that will help. Well, some of the developing stories of the day. President Trump appeared to tie the... the uh, Firing of FBI Director James Comey to the Russian investigation. Former FBI Deputy Director Andrew McCabe reportedly claims in a secret memo. Roseanne Barr is uh, considering fighting ABC's cancellation of her hit series over her uh, racist tweet. As the president and the White House rip networks double standard, they've cited it infamously uh, uh, overlooks anti-Trump media personalities comments that were equally um, offensive. And Secretary of State Mike Pompeo and top North Korean officials dined together in New York City in an effort to revive a potential summit between Trump and Kim Jong-un. At this moment, although it could change in a moment, it appears that that uh, summit is on. Whether or not it takes place on the 12th or some place, sometime thereabouts is not yet clear. But for the moment, and I'll try to keep you updated, it appears to be moving forward. Uh, the Trump administration is going to carry out its threats to impose tariffs on steel and aluminum or Aluminium, depending on where you're from, from the European Union as early as, uh, well, tomorrow, uh, according to reports. And Florida prosecutors released three videos of the Parkland school shooting suspect Nicholas Cruz detailing a plan to kill a majority of Stoneman Douglas High School students. It is a chilling video. Uh, The president will not meet with special counsel Robert Mueller's team until after White House sees all Spygate documents, according to his attorney, Rudy Giuliani. And the Justice Department's inspector general and key FBI officials are set to testify on Capitol Hill on the FBI's handling of the Hillary Clinton emails. And lots of people are braced for that. Well, as mentioned, former FBI Director Andrew McCabe claimed in a secret memo he wrote last year that the president possibly tied his decision to fire FBI Director James Comey to the Russian investigation, according to reports. An anonymous source told the Associated Press that McCabe's memo focused on a conversation he had with Deputy Attorney General Rob Rosenstein about Rosenstein's preparations for Comey's firing. According to The New York Times, McCabe described secondhand a conversation he heard about from Rosenstein, who spoke with Trump about Casey, or rather Comey's firing. According to McCabe, Trump asked Rosenstein to mention Russia in the deputy attorney general's memo recommending Comey's termination. But the final version of that memo didn't include Russia and focused instead on Comey's handling of the Hillary Clinton email investigation. A person familiar with that situation told the Associated Press that the previously unknown document was turned over to special counsel Robert Mueller. McCabe became FBI director, or at least acting director, following Comey's firing 
resigning last May. He was fired as deputy director in March, just days before he scheduled his retirement amid an inspector general finding that he had misled internal investigators about his role in an October 2016 disclosure to The Wall Street Journal. Hmm. Well, Roseanne Barr said she's um, considering fighting ABC's move to cancel her revival of her show after her uh, tweets. And she pushed an unproven theory that former First Lady Michelle Obama was behind her ouster, despite initially saying she would uh, would be quitting Twitter after posting the negative uh, charged comments about former Obama aide Valerie Jarrett. She returned to Twitter on Tuesday and let loose on social media. On Wednesday, she revealed that the uh, positive feedback she was getting from people who still support her was making her feel emboldened to combat ABC. Uh, in some way. One uh, activist even went so far as to accuse ABC Entertainment, President Channing Dungy, of uh, consulting former First Lady Michelle Obama before canceling the show. Barr tweeted the unverified claim to her followers. I think she was uh, probably onto something when she said she was going to stay away from Twitter for a while, but Twitter uh, tweets are hard to. Uh, I suppose, to walk away from. Meanwhile, President Trump commented for the first time about ABC's cancellation, knocking the network for not apologizing in other instances where people have made horrible anti-Trump comments on ABC. Bob Iger of ABC called Valerie Jarrett to let her know that ABC does not tolerate comments like those made to by Roseanne Barr, rather, Trump tweeted. Gee, he never called President Donald J. Trump to apologize for the horrible statements made and said about me on ABC. Maybe I just didn't get the call. Well, North Korea's longtime spy chief and Secretary of State Mike Pompeo had dinner together in New York on Wednesday night as the United, as, uh, rather the United States tries to salvage a potential summit between the two countries' leaders. Kim Yong-chol, Kim's infamous right-hand man and a vice chairman of the uh, ruling Working Party, met with Pompeo after he arrived at JFK International Airport around 2 p.m. on Wednesday. The North Korean is the highest-ranking official from the communist nation to visit the United States since 2000. Kim and Pompeo sat together for a more than an hour planning a day full of meetings for today, the White House said. And EU tariffs are coming. The Trump administration imposed or will impose, I believe, as early as tomorrow. It's uh, promised tariffs on steel and aluminum from the European Union, um, as well as other allied uh, countries. The decision to slap these tariffs on steel and aluminum from the European Union uh, was announced earlier today. It would... Um, be a day ahead of tomorrow's deadline to win concessions from EU counterparts. The U.S. Commerce Department and U.S. Trade Representative's Office didn't immediately respond to questions or requests for comment, according to the Wall Street Journal. But President Trump, on March the 23rd, imposed a 25% tariff on steel imports and a 10% tariff on aluminum, but granted temporary exemptions to the EU, Canada, Mexico, Brazil, Australia, and Argentina. Now all bets are off. And prosecutors on Wednesday released three chilling videos of Parkland shooting school shooting suspect Nicholas Cruz detailing his plans to become famous after plotting to kill people at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School. He said, uh, my name is Nick and I'm going to be the next school shooter of 2018. Cruz is 19. He calmly stated in the video, uh, or at least one of the three, uh, which appears to have been filmed on the 14th of February, the day of the mass shooting. The gunman said there was going to be a big event at Stoneman Douglas Cruz, um, uh, also accused of using an AR-15 semi-automatic rifle to kill the 17 and injure many more, said his goal is to 
uh, at least 20 people with the AR to kill at least 20 with the AR-15. And former FBI Director Mark Felt steps uh, forward as Deep Throat, the secret a Washington Post source during the Watergate scandal, breaking a 30-year silence on this day in 2005. And in 1935, on this day, movie studio 20th Century Fox created through a merger of the Fox Film Corporation and 20th Century Pictures began its work. Now we're going to take a break in just a moment. I want to remind you that coming up later this hour, we'll talk with Barb Roos. The book is titled Winning the Worry Battle, and there's certainly many things to worry about, but how should we respond is the question. The subtitle, Life Lessons from the Book of Joshua. So we'll look forward to talking with her about that when she joins us later this hour. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back 21 minutes after 4 o'clock. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, Salem's water is still unsafe uh, after new tests found that toxins in the city's tap water were still too high for young children and some adults. A public health warning remains in effect indefinitely. Well, in response, Governor Kate Brown ordered the Oregon Military Department to provide additional water supplies to the city of Salem and Marion County. Ten free water stations have been set up at five locations in Salem and Staten. That started today, but the exact location hadn't been announced. Well, Brown declared a state of emergency for Marion and Polk counties to make additional state resources available. That declaration also cites the disruption of the local retail market created by concern about the quality of the area's water, giving the Oregon Attorney General authority to investigate claims of price gouging by local markets. Uh, we've already received consumer complaints from Oregonians who believe they've been the victim of price gouging in the last 48 hours. That's a quote from uh, Ellen Rosenblum, Oregon Attorney General, in a statement. Anybody else who believes that they have been the victim of price gouging or who has information regarding potential price gouging should immediately file a complaint at OregonConsumer.gov or call the Attorney General's Consumer Hotline. On Saturday, Salem officials found out there were uh, elevated levels of uh, cyanotoxins or something like that in the uh, drinking water. Uh, Tuesday evening, they issued the health advisory alerting parents of children under six and people with uh, com- compromised health immune systems that toxins uh, caused the, by algae blooms in the Detroit Lake area had contaminated Salem's water. Well, on Thursday, Salem Mayor Chuck Bennett told the, the uh, Statesman Journal he didn't... Uh, Uh, okay the decision to delay alerting the public and doesn't agree with it. I wasn't contacted about the advisory and don't agree with delaying it once you know the situation. Well, as we mentioned yesterday, there's sort of a 10-day window, and as you approach that 10 days when the accumulation of um, those toxins in the water could do damage, I suppose, is why they, um, they waited. They wanted to make sure. But Bennett said the entire emergency notification system failed, including the state and city communications during this period, which added to the sense of panic some res- uh, residents rightfully experienced based on what they had initially been told. The mayor also pointed to a Wednesday press conference at City Hall where officials there attempted to answer questions about the water advisory. The staff held a press conference and were not prepared for some of the questions asked. That advisory remains in place, although the latest concentrations of the uh, toxins are not considered dangerous for healthy people, people receiving uh, dialysis treatment, people with pre-existing liver conditions, pregnant women, nursing mothers, should still avoid tap water in Salem, Staten, and 
Turner. Roughly 180,000 people live in the cities that get their water from the North Santiam River. Well, the Salem City Council uh, held a special meeting or will hold one on Friday at noon at City Hall to address the water advisory. Hopefully they'll be better prepared to answer questions at that time. And Salem residents uh, were pretty outraged about the delay between when officials found out and when they issued the advisory. One resident told the Statesman Journal by email, we know of a young student living in Salem with cancer who is on chemotherapy now. This brave young person and their family had the right to know about the water contamination immediately, not after 10 days had passed. So frustrating. And the Oregon Health Authority has advised Salem hospitals against using the tainted tap water, providing this guidance. At drinking water advisory levels, hospitals should not use tap water for patients to care. That includes washing open wounds or exposed tissue unless the water has been treated at the facility to remove uh, cyanotoxins. Hospitals that pre-treat water from the local public water supply using reverse osmosis, uh, nanofiltration, or continuous disinfection with chlorine as per uh, recommended treatment specifications may continue to use the water for patient care. So that advisory remains in place. But there are uh, neighbors surrounding the Salem area who have made uh, their water supply available uh, to those um, who are in need. And as we mentioned, the National Guard has been called out uh, to also supply water to Salem residents. There are a number of businesses in the Kaiser area who are offering free free and clean water there. Weeks Berry Nursery, Daystring uh, Fellowship, Eagle Home Mortgage, Bob and Colleen Bush. Uh, they have a faucet in their garage, Creative Kids Learning Center, McNary Golf Club, uh, and some individuals. It goes on and on from there. But Marion County residents are trying to uh, help their neighbors get through this uh, this difficult time. For whatever length of time, it's going to be a problem for residents. So you might want to keep your eyes and ears open for those opportunities for free water. And if, as the governor and her uh, and the attorney general pointed out, if you uh, see examples of price gouging, uh, do let the state know. Meanwhile, today, the Trump administration said it's going to impose tariffs on steel and aluminum uh, imports from Europe, from Mexico and Canada after failing to win concessions from the American allies. Europe and Mexico pledged to retaliate rather uh, rather quickly, exacerbating transatlantic and North American trade tensions and financial markets fell. Uh, over fears of a trade war. Well, Commerce Secretary Wilbert Ross said the tariffs would be 25% on steel, 10% on aluminum, and go into effect on Friday. The administration followed through on the penalties after earlier granting exemptions to buy time for negotiations. President Trump uh, had announced the tariffs in March, citing national security concerns. Well, the European Commission's president, Jean-Claude Juncker, said uh, Trump's decision amounted to trade protectionism and that Europe would respond with countermeasures. This is protectionism, pure and simple. Mexico said it would penalize U.S. imports, including pork bellies, apples, grapes, cheese and flat steel. Donald Trump is a bully. And the only way to deal with a bully is to stand up and to push back. That's Ontario's premier speaking on the tariff. The U.S. action widens a growing rift with America's closest allies, threatens to drive up prices for companies and consumers that buy steel and aluminum, heightens uncertainty for businesses, and is already alarming investors in global financial markets. Financial markets dipped uh, with concerns about the disputes among trading partners, with the Dow Jones Industrial Average dropping more than 200 points. Well, the tariffs directed at some of the U.S.'s most ardent allies represented the latest move in 
President Trump's America First agenda that's roiled financial markets, raised the specter of a trade war involving the U.S., China, and some of the globe's most dominant economies. The trade action have, um, actions, rather, plural, have opened the U.S. to criticism that it's burning bridges at a time when Trump is seeking to rid North Korea of nuclear weapons and help stabilize the Middle East. We're alienating all of our friends and partners at a time when we could really use their support. A former U.S. trade negotiator who's now vice president at the Asia Society Policy Institute says, Ross told reporters that talks with Canada and Mexico over revising the North American Free Trade Agreement were talking or rather taking longer than we had hoped. Talks with Europe had uh, some progress, but not enough for additional exemptions, he said in a conference call from Paris. We continue to be quite willing and indeed eager to have further discussions, Ross said. Uh, He said he uh, planned to travel to China on Friday for trade talks between the world's two biggest economy. Well, European officials bracing for the tariffs have threatened to retaliate against U.S. orange juice, peanut butter, kitchenware, clothing and footwear, washing machines, textiles, whiskey, motorcycles, boats and batteries. The EU will decide exactly which countermeasures are coming in the coming weeks, according to French officials. The EU said it would take legal action on Friday through the World Trade Organization, setting in motion a process aimed at settling the dispute over the penalties. The EU's move uh, could increase pressure on Washington, but the process traditionally takes many months and in some cases years. In terms of the NAFTA talks, the tariffs could hinder the negotiations among the North American neighbors Ross said there was uh, no longer a very precise date when they uh, may be uh, concluded, and therefore Canada and Mexico were added into the list of those who bear tariffs. Brazil, Argentina, and Australia have agreed to limit steel shipments to the United States in exchange for being spared the tariffs, the Commerce Department said. Tariffs will remain on imports from Japan, however. So are we... Uh, approaching a trade war that is imposed by decisions made here in the United States. It's an open question, but it certainly appears uh, to be the case. We'll continue to follow that story as it develops, and we'll talk more about what that might mean for consumers here in the United States. So we'll get into that. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, brought to you in part today by Liberty Coin and Currency. Up next, we're going to talk with Barb Roos. She is a Bible teacher and the author of Winning the Worry Battle, Life Lessons from the Book of Joshua. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 35 minutes after 4 o'clock, you're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. For those who struggle with worry and anxiety, every day can feel as if it's a fighting and a losing battle. And according to the Anxiety and Depression Association of America, anxiety disorders are the most common mental illness in the United States, affecting some 40 million adults age 18 and older, or 18% of the population. Research also reveals that women are twice as likely to be affected by panic disorder, generalized anxiety disorder, social anxiety disorder, and specific phobias. From personal experience, my next guest, author and Bible teacher Barb Roos, understands what it means to battle with worry. Her new book, Winning the Worry Battle, Life Lessons from the Book of Joshua, and a companion Bible study on Joshua, share the wisdom she's garnered over the years to help other women gain victory over their anxieties. Combining inspiration, humor, and personal stories, Winning the Worry Battle offers encouragement and practical worry-fighting tools for handling those situations that cause us to struggle with worry, anxiety, fear, and even complete breakdown. 
Well, Barbara Roos is a popular speaker and author who is uh, passionate about connecting women to one another and to God. Her goal is to equip women to win at life with Christ-empowered strength and dignity. She enjoys teaching and encouraging women at conferences and events across the country and abroad. She is the author of Beautiful Already, Reclaiming God's Perspective on Beauty, along with uh, their companion Bible studies, and Enough Already, Winning Your Ugly Struggle with Beauty. She also writes a regular blog at Barb Roos, and that's with two O's, uh, com, and hosts the uh, bi-monthly Better Together podcast. She and her husband, Matt, live in Toledo, Ohio, and they're the parents of three beautiful daughters. Again, she joins us today to talk about her latest book, Winning the Worry Battle, Life Lessons from the Book of Joshua. Thank you so much for joining us today. Georgine, thank you so much for having me. Now, you write in the book that you, uh, when you first got married and started your family, that's really when worry for you began, because like most parents, you begin to think about and worry about your, your children. Talk a little bit about your, um, your struggle with worry and how it manifested itself for you. When I had my children, that's when I put the label warrior on myself. Uh, but the seeds had been planted when I was in high school. And when I reflected as I've been thinking about my worry battle, I thought about in high school how I got in the pattern of always looking at the worst case scenario. And it wasn't because I was a pessimist. Uh, it was my type A personality. I wanted to think through everything that could go wrong and come up with a plan to fix it. But what I ended up doing was teaching myself to always think about worst-case scenarios. Mm-hmm. So when I did have my kids, I became a queen at worst-first thinking. Well, and I think today all you have to do is uh, turn the television on, read a headline, and there's lots to contribute to that sense of, uh, of dread, if you will, and worrying. How much time does the average person spend worrying on a daily basis? This statistic was powerful. I ran through, well, I researched a study that said the average person spends 55 minutes per day worrying. And contextually for me, when I think about an hour a day, I think through how many awful worst case scenarios can you fit into an hour and what that could do to a person's day. And for me, I realized that I probably spent more than an hour worrying. And for people who do struggle with an anxiety disorder, that same study said that they could spend up to five hours per day worrying. That is, that's a lot of time. That is a lot of pain and a lot of anguish to to suffer through. What toll does that kind of worry take on an individual who regularly and for long periods of time, as you've described, engages in worrying? The toll is mental, physical, emotional, and relational. Uh, When I think about it for my life, when I... Wanted to, I wanted to create a picture of what worry looked like in my life, and so I called it worry flicks. Mm-hmm. So Netflix, you stream lots of you stream episode after episode. So worry flicks for me was I was thinking of the worst case scenario, and that meant that when I worried, that meant that I would have that nauseous stomach, I would have a headache, sweaty palms. How many of us have spent the day stressed out, and so you're snapping at people, and when your kids want a snack, you're short with them, and then you're up walking the floor at night because you can't sleep. It's hard for us to engage in relationships when we're always stressed out because we're always looking for the worst, and we can't love people and care about them because we're always waiting for the sky to fall, as Chicken Little used to say. So it has a real 
and defined impact on our lives, which is important because a lot of people underestimate the damage that worry and anxiety can do. What does the Bible say about worry? Are we entitled to it? What are we supposed to do with it when it comes? What I appreciate is that God understands exactly where you and I are at. And for anyone listening, anecdotally, uh, they say that there are 365 verses in the Bible that begin or have, do not fear or do not be afraid. So what that tells me in the Word of God is that He understands what our lives are like. And so if we look in the Scriptures, there are all of these verses commanding us not to be worried or afraid. But I also think that that also tells us that God knew how often we would think about it. So those verses are powerful, but that's also why I chose the book of Joshua, because that theme of do not be worried and do not be afraid in uncertain circumstances, that is the key theme in the book of Joshua. Yeah, yeah. Now, for those who aren't familiar with the book of Joshua, give us a brief overview and why this book speaks so profoundly to the challenge that we face not to worry or to be afraid. The high-level view is there were a million to two million people who had wandered in the desert with no home for 40 years, and Joshua was a man that was chosen by God to succeed Moses, who was the leader while the people marched around the wilderness. And Joshua's job was to take them from being unsettled into a land of uncertainty. And when I think about uncertainty, that is everyday life. It's not knowing what happens next. And the power of this book for me was that Joshua, he faced the same pressures that we all face. He had people that he had to take care of, the Israelites. He had battles that he had to fight, all of the the kings in the promised land, and he had challenges. And all throughout the book, especially beginning in the first chapter, God's message is be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or discouraged. And Joshua, he was a man who found a way to embrace uncertainty and trust God. What are some of the common things that people worry about today? Because worry is very common, as we uh, discussed earlier. When we think, if we organize the list, family, friends, our health, our finances, those are kind of the top tier. Then the future, there's a lot of worry for the future. There are studies that say people are terrified over the economy, terrified over health care, social security, terrorism. Millennials are a growing group. Their top worries are the future and their top worries are their finances. But actually parents are tied to some of the cause of that. So when we think about our everyday life, Jesus says, do not worry about your everyday life, because we do worry about everyday life and every aspect of everyday life. Well, and of course, there are lots of contributing factors that encourage us to worry about everyday life. And yet we're we're urged as uh, believers to be influenced by God's word and not so much by what the headlines tell us. That is a, a big challenge in the 21st century information age. It is a huge challenge. For anyone who's on social media, there are study after study that uh, that comes to the conclusion that when people expose themselves to negative content over and over again, it reduces their sense of wellness and it raises their anxiety. So there is a part of this where we have to have wisdom. But even if we remove social media and we removed outside influences, we ourselves 
we, I like to say that the difference between worry and worship is who we're talking to. Hmm. So when we are confronted with anything in life that we're unsure of, worry is when we think that it all depends on us. It's when we're talking to us, we rely on our own resources. Worship is where we go, you know what, God, I have no idea what's going to come next, but I believe that you are with me and for me in every situation. So the challenge for us is to think about the difference between worry and worship and flip the script instead of saying, what if in life, to say, you know what, God, if the mechanic calls and the repair bill is huge, I'm going to trust you're going to take care of me. Instead of what if the test results are bad. God, if the test results are bad, I know it's going to be hard, but I know you're going to be with me every step of the way. We're talking about the book, Winning the Worry Battle, Life Lessons from the Book of Joshua. My guest is Barb Bruce. We're going to continue our conversation in just a moment, but we do need to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to talk about some of the practical tools that she makes available, some techniques that can help us when we are confronted by the things that cause us to worry. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back 52 minutes after 4 o'clock. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. My guest is Barb Roos. She's a popular speaker and author who is passionate about connecting women to one another and to God. Her latest book is Winning the Worry Battle, Life Lessons from the Book of Joshua. We would always do well to go to uh, the Word of God to discover how we can deal with the challenges of this life. (laughs) And worry is certainly uh, one of them. Now, um, many times in response to sharing our worries, we're told to just pray about it. And you certainly acknowledge the value of prayer, but also some other practical tools that God has given us in our arsenal to help us through seasons of worry. What are they? Some of the practical tools are this God-enabled of peace and courage and strength. And what I love about God-enabled tools is that the Holy Spirit super empowers those tools in our lives. And the difference between knowing about those tools and using them, uh, that came to me because my oldest daughter is an Army officer. And when I think about her training to become a warrior, she doesn't just stand in front of the tools and go, hey, that's great. But she has to practice using those tools every day. So for all of us, we have to realize that the difference between being a warrior and a warrior is how well we train. How do we activate those tools of peace and courage and strength? And that's why I have lots of techniques like the calm technique and the God morning, God night that we will we probably can talk about in a bit. Let's um let's talk about those techniques because I think for many of us we need those tools to help us um, navigate through those difficult times. Let's talk about calm. Well, the calm technique is my favorite. I discovered when I am freaking out over something, I I have a hard time praying. And for many years in my worry battle, I felt so guilty because I was a Christian and I still worried. So the calm technique is reducing our physical symptoms so that we can reconnect with God. It's C-A-L-M. You can do this on the go when the, when the tension is on. The C stands for count to five, and not just one, two, three, four, five, because frankly, I did that and I was still stressed. But it is a way of doing it, inhaling deeply on the one and exhaling Mississippi, inhaling on the two and exhaling Mississippi. And the combination of that it helps to slow our heart rate, and it helps to interrupt our negative thoughts. The A stands for acknowledge God. 
This is where we want to invite God into our struggle. God, I know that you're here with me right now. You keep it real simple. The L stands for list your need. God knows what our what your needs are, but this is the place where you can talk to God. God, I have no idea how I'm going to pay for my classes this summer. And you just tell God what you need. And then the M is meditate. For people who struggle with this idea of meditation, because people go, well, is that what Christians should do? If you worry, you meditate. Instead, we're just going to meditate on God instead of what's going wrong. So the meditation is God is here and he will take care of this. So that's the calm technique. And I use it myself all the time. Mm. Another um, a phrase that we're familiar with, or two phrases, is good morning and good night. But you have a technique that's called God morning, God night. Explain that. I discovered, well, I thought through this technique. It was uh, inspired by Joshua chapter 1, verse 8, and it says, study this book of the law, meditate on it day and night, and then you, and be careful to obey all that's written into it. The research says that worry surges first thing in the morning, and it surges last thing at night. When we wake up in the morning, all of a sudden we're hit with everything that we need to do that day, and how's it going to turn out? And then at night, we're concerned about what's unresolved and how things are going to turn out. So God morning is when I open my eyes, I then repeat five promises of God. And I have a starter set right there in the early part of the book in case someone doesn't have their own verses, but they're short promises of God that I can repeat to myself before I start thinking about my day and start getting a little anxious over it. And then at night, I repeat those same promises of God before I lay down at night because sleeplessness over worry and anxiety is a real thing. So we invite God in before the stress shows up. Mm. Uh, We're talking about uh, God-empowered tools that you will find in the book, Winning the Worry Battle, uh, that help us to get through our daily struggles as well as those bigger battles that we face. Another device that you you write about is Count to Twelve Memory Device. This isn't just uh, simply one, two, three, four, (laughs) but this is a, a, a means by which we can deal with our worry. Yes, I am a fast forgetter. I when <laughs> I am stressed, it is hard for me to remember that God has ever done anything for me. And so when we are stressed, we feel like, oh my gosh, all is lost. And so count to 12 is a memory device where we are then able to recall God's faithfulness because we have stocked our memory in advance with the 12 times that God showed up in a big way. And this was taken from the part in Joshua where the Israelites crossed over the Jordan from the wilderness into the promised land. And God asked the the tribe, one person to carry a stone and build a memorial so that the parents could teach their children about how God brought them through the Jordan on dry land. When I turned in the first draft of the book, my editor, she read this chapter and she took 12 stones. She found, got 12 stones from the, from the art store. She wrote on the bottom the 12 memories that she remembered for God showing up, and she put them in a bowl on her table. That's one of the things I suggest. And a family member came over and read the bottom of those stones, and it was a family member who was far from God. Part of that 12-stone memorial is for us, but it also can serve as a ready testimony for us to share with others who may need encouragement of God's faithfulness, too. Mm, mm, I love that. How do we learn to view uncertainty, which is one of the things we often worry about, uh, from God's perspective? You write about it in the book. 
I picture uncertainty like a cliffhanger. Do you remember those TV shows back in the day when at the end of the season, the main character was literally hanging off of a cliff? <laughs> yes. <laughs> and so uncertainty feels like that for me. There are times when I don't know what's going to happen and I feel like I'm hanging off of a cliff. And there have been times in life where I've been angry with God because I'm like, God, do you not see me dangling here? When are you going to tell me what's going to happen? And so I, in the book, I talk about this awakening that I had, that God protects me with what he doesn't give me as much as he blesses me with what he does give me, Mm. that I can't know everything that God knows, and I don't want to know everything that God knows. Um, in In the book of Deuteronomy, Moses is talking to the people, and he says the same thing to them. He said that God has secrets known to no one, and we're not accountable for them. But we are accountable for what he has revealed to us, that I have had to learn for my life, that I have to trust that what God has given me, the circumstances that he's given me, are what's best for me right now. And that if he hasn't showed me the bigger picture, that I have to trust him that he has the reason why. Mm. Now, what other resources are available? I know you are a blogger. You also have a podcast for listeners who would like to learn more in addition to the book. One of the things I love is the Joshua Bible Study. I wrote the Bible study at the same time I wrote the book. This is a six-week in-depth Bible study on winning the worry battle. So the book is filled with my stories, um, and some of them are crazy, like the time I bought a house without telling my husband. Um, (laughs) There are lots of stories, but the Bible study, Joshua Bible study, it's all in-depth about the entire book of Joshua. And then at barbroos.com, my online home, there is a free 21-day of prayer challenge. I know for folks out there who just have been so overwhelmed and cannot even begin to pray, you drop in your email, and every day for 21 days, I will send you a beautiful verse about do not be afraid or do not worried, as well as a prayer. So it's like I'm praying right along with you. Oh, wonderful. Once again, the book is titled Winning the Worry Battle, Life Lessons from the Book of Joshua. You might also also want to inquire about the Bible study as well. Barbara Roos, thank you so much for talking with us today. Thank you, Georgine. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We've got news and traffic coming up here at the top of the hour. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the second hour of The Georgine Rice Show. Glad to have you with us. I want to remind you that tomorrow night... That's Friday, June the 1st in Lake Oswego. You have an opportunity to hear Abby Johnson. She's the former director of a Planned Parenthood abortion clinic in Texas. In 2009, she experienced an incredible transformation, and now she's a pro-life advocate who helps others leave the abortion industry. She's going to be speaking at the uh, upcoming Speak Life event. Uh, That's going to be tomorrow, 6.30 p.m. at Our Lady of the Lake Catholic Church. For more information about that, you can phone 541 286-3039, 286-3039, or you can go to the website, OregonLifeUnited.org. The event is free, but you do need tickets, so check that out tomorrow night at 6.30. Well, President Trump today announced that he will pardon conservative filmmaker Dinesh D'Souza. He was convicted of making an illegal campaign contribution in 2014. We'll be giving a full pardon to Dinesh D'Souza today. He was treated very unfairly by our government, the president tweeted this morning. 
Well, D'Souza told Fox News that he received the call from the president on Wednesday to notify him of that decision. He said, I'm thrilled and relieved and elated. And as an immigrant in America, my American dream has been under something of a cloud. So I'm very relieved to have that cloud lifted. D'Souza said he and Trump spoke for about 10 minutes, calling it a very pleasant and very exciting call. President Trump told me he felt I had been treated very unfairly and he felt that I was an important voice in America. He wanted to clean my record and adhere to uh, continue doing what I'm doing. Hmm. Well, the uh, conservative filmmaker had uh, pleaded guilty in 2014 to donating $20,000 to New York politician Wendy Long, allegedly going over the contribution limit by directing other donors to give to her as well. He was sentenced to five years of probation, eight months in a halfway house, and paid $30,000 in fines. Despite his guilty plea, he and uh, his allies have claimed for years that he was unfairly singled out for prosecution and unfairly treated by the Obama administration. D'Souza in 2012 made a hit anti-Obama documentary called 2016, Obama's America. The film examined then-President Obama's past and early influences that may have shaped his political ideology. It's quite interesting uh Uh, film, by the way. D'Souza's 2014 indictment was uh, announced by then U.S. Attorney uh, Preet Bahara, who was appointed by Obama and uh, fired in 2017 by Trump. That indictment stated that D'Souza was charged with one count of illegally donating to a Senate campaign, one count of causing false statements to be made to authorities in connection with the contributions. D'Souza's legal campaign contrib- uh, contribution rather was made in 2012 to Long's U.S. Senate campaign. D'Souza pled guilty to using a straw donor to make the donation. In other words, giving them money to give to the campaign. A straw donor is that person who illegally uh, uses another person's finances to make that contribution in their own name because there are limits on how much an individual can give. Straw donor schemes are illegal under U.S. law, which states that no person should knowingly permit their name to be used to affect such a contribution, and no person shall knowingly accept a contribution made by one person in the name of another. D'Souza allegedly coordinated donations to the campaign, the longs uh, senatorial campaign through friends and acquaintances long lost her Senate bid against now Senator uh, Kristen Gillibrand, a Democrat out of New York. President uh, Trump is also saying he's considering pardoning Martha Stewart and Rod Blagojevich. Uh, he said this also today. He was uh, making that consideration. The president's comments came during a gaggle with uh, reporters on Air Force One en route to Houston, Texas. He called the former governor's sentence on corruption charges really unfair and added that plenty of other politicians could have said a lot worse. Uh, the president said that Blagojevich uh, said something dumb and that lots of politicians do. Boy, there's a lot of ways you could go there, but I'm going to leave it alone. The former Democratic governor who was a contestant on Trump's Celebrity Apprentice in 2010 began his 14-year prison sentence in 2012 after being convicted of corruption. He's scheduled for release in 2024. Now, Trump suggested he was more interested in curtailing his sentence than a full pardon. The president also said that he would consider pardoning Martha Stewart, saying she used to be one of my biggest fans. Stewart was convicted in 2004 of obstructing justice and lying to the government as part of an insider trading case. At the time, former FBI Director James Comey was the federal prosecutor who charged her. The president's comments came after an early morning tweet announcing that he would pardon Dinesh D'Souza. Well, I sometimes wonder if HGTV is contributing to the uh, mass migration to Texas, but according to the new U.S. Census Bureau, 
uh, report of the 15 fastest growing cities, larger than 50,000 people. Seven are in Texas, including the top three, Frisco, New Branfels, and let's see, Pflugerville. Frisco's growth rate uh, was 8.2%, some 11 times faster than the national rate of 0.7%. Of the cities with the greatest population gained from July of 2016... Uh, to July of 2017, San Antonio, Texas, took the prize, adding some 66 people every day. Now, Texas had the most cities in the top 15 of this category as well, uh, with five making the list and three of the top five overall, in addition to San Antonio, Dallas, Fort Worth, Frisco, and Austin. Now, one of the things I enjoy about watching HGTV and some of the programs that focus on uh, Texas is the cost of living there is significantly lower. Now, that may not be a, a true across the board, but it does make it seem awfully attractive. Well, San Antonio now has more than 1.5 million people, ranks as the nation's seventh largest city, just behind Philadelphia, Fort Worth. Uh, meanwhile, uh, knocked uh, Indianapolis, Indiana out of the top 15 with a population of 874,000. Houston is America's fourth largest city and is also the most diverse large city in the nation. Well, the population growth doesn't happen in a vacuum. People move for many reasons, among them work, opportunity, and affordable housing. And the availability of jobs, the government uh, uh, attitude amenable to small business and available housing doesn't happen in a vacuum either. Politicians' decisions can help or hurt these factors through tax rates, regulation, loss, uh, lawsuit climate, and land use restrictions. And so it's a, sort of an instructive uh, note on what attracts people to a community and what repels them. And again, that list is um, uh, Texas had seven of the top cities, Florida two, Tennessee one, Arizona one, um, Colorado one, Idaho, Iowa, Oregon uh, also um, one. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we'll talk about San Diego parents who might want to consider moving to Texas, who pulled their kids from a school and rallied outside the district's headquarters, expressing anger and frustration over a sex ed curriculum they allege is completely inappropriate for their young children. We'll talk about it when we return. Oh, you're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast is aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 21 minutes after 5 o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, San Diego parents have pulled their kids from school, and they've also rallied outside the district headquarters. That was on Tuesday, expressing anger and frustration because of the sex ed curriculum they say is completely inappropriate for their young children. Well, the sixth grade curriculum includes lessons on gender identity, birth control, the stages of sex, STDs, HIV, and pregnancy. Parents are calling the materials too much, too soon, and age-inappropriate. San Diego officials, they defend the curriculum by arguing that the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention supports the lesson plan. So it doesn't really matter what the parents think, the ones who are actually raising the kids. We're going to ask them to suspend this new curriculum because it's not a curriculum for the adolescent brain. It's an adult curriculum, says one mom. San Diego parents also loudly rallied in February, asking the district to change its sex ed curriculum to make it age appropriate then. But the district board didn't acquiesce. Parents also began an online petition asking the school district to abandon the curriculum. This is absolutely appropriate for our students, says the San Diego Unified School District, maintaining that the parents are getting upset over material that should, in fact, be taught to young students. 
San Diego parents uh, can opt their children out of the sex ed curriculum if they choose, but not substitute curriculum will be, or no substitute rather, curriculum will be provided. Fort Worth schools have also uh, been reeling after a sex ed lesson for sixth graders entailed uh, gender transition and sexual fluidity, according to the Star Telegram. <clears throat> Excuse me. Sex ed programs in other states have also been causing chaos. A California school district told parents in February. Uh, They can't opt their kids out of a new sex ed course covering abortion, homosexuality, transgender issues, despite California's Healthy Youth Act 2015, which lets parents opt their children out of sex ed classes. The Orange County Board of Education decided parents don't have that right. Hmm. Delaware is considering adopting a policy allowing young school students to choose whatever name, gender or race they want under a veil of school protection, mandating the parents not be informed of these decisions unless the student explicitly wishes the parents be included. So parents, you might want to look up the uh, textbook definition of what the role of the parent is as opposed to the state or the education institution, because they're slowly chipping away at what rights you may have as the... uh, Parents of kids. Well, Tony Perkins points out that there is a crisis among us, and it has to do with pornography that many people are just simply quite ambivalent about. He writes that if you're ambivalent about the crisis of pornography in America, the New York Times can change that. Almost instantly, the paper jolted an entire nation into caring with its jarring February expose. Maybe you missed it. What teenagers are learning from online porn. It's extremely graphic, and if their stories don't shock, repulse, sober, and motivate you, nothing will. What our kids are stumbling on isn't your grandfather's pornography. They aren't Playboy magazines stashed under a teenage boy's bed. These are raw, violent, and nauseating videos that they don't have to sneak into a store for. Every child has a world full of it at their fingertips. Every time they hold a cell phone or log onto a laptop, the door is open to a life-changing experience that could kill the relationship in their lives uh, forever. Well, pornography is everywhere, and the research is grim. States are lining up to declare it a public health hazard, and while a handful of people might mock the wave of legislation, Americans on both sides of the aisle are realizing this is an actual catastrophe. These sites, the same ones teaching kids a distorted and twisted version of uh, what God created, sex, uh, get more uh, visitors every month, um, uh, each month, than Netflix, Amazon, and Twitter combined. These are the actors who are being exploited for an industry that's tied to the dark world of trafficking, domestic violence, child abuse, and abortion. This is the sinister trade, rather, that's teaching men to dehumanize women, leading spouses to stray from marriages, and destroying intimacy the world over. This is no longer a Republican or a Democratic issue. It's an American issue. And if more people don't stand up and do something about it, we risk losing society as we know it. Nine states have agreed, passing resolutions that make fighting pornography a priority of local communities, rather. Missouri could be next, calling it a disturbing and invasive social evil. Resolution 52 sailed out of the state Senate in the Missouri House. Pornography has become the cancer that nobody wants to talk about, one local leader said. Almost everyone has been personally impacted by it or know someone who has, SCR 52 breaks the silence in Missouri by declaring to the world that pornography is a public health crisis.
crisis, end quote. To this, uh, this is no longer, rather, someone else's problem. It affects our playgrounds, our politics, even our pulpits. The devastation to marriages and families and teenagers is real. Ross Duthat argued in the New York Times piece, we are, are supposed to be in the midst of a great sexual reassessment, a clearing out of assumptions that serve misogyny and impose bad sex on semi-willing women. And such a reassessment will be incomplete if it never reconsiders our surrender to the idea that many teenagers, most young men especially, will get their sex education from online smut. The belief that it should not be restricted is a mistake. The belief that it cannot be censored is a superstition. Law and jurisprudence changed once and can change again, end quote. Well, as a parent, I can encourage you strongly enough to take this issue seriously, he writes, again, quoting Tony Perkins. Yes, it is an uncomfortable topic, but it's a lot less uncomfortable than dealing with the sexual abuse, addictions, disease, broken relationships that follow. If you don't know what to say, start here or here or here. Uh, it might be one of the most important conversations that you'll ever have. Tony Perkins writing for the Daily Signal. Well, we learned that public schools in Oregon have one of the lowest graduation rates in the country. The state also requires students to be in class for fewer days than students in most other states. That has people, including state school board members, questioning whether there's a correlation between those two facts. Year after year, the state's high school graduation rate is among the worst in the country. Currently, one out of every four students does not graduate high school in four years. That's in Oregon. It's always the uh, students who lose on every issue. It's the students who lose. That's a parent and Oregon Board of Education member Kim Sordell. Education advocates say many factors contribute to the state's low graduation graduation rate, including high class sizes, early state times, absenteeism, poverty, budget deficits. But Sordle says one factor seems obvious and ignored. Oregon students just don't go to school as much as kids in other states. Around the country, students in other states average 180 days of instructional time in a school year, according to the National Center for Education Statistics. Those are defined as days when kids are at their desk learning from a teacher. In Oregon, the average is 165 instructional days. 180 minus 165. That's almost the lowest in the country. Well, parents say they're not surprised by the low number of instructional days in Oregon. Um, One parent whose child used to attend North Clackamas School said it even became a joke among um, uh, young parents. My colleagues and I used to refer to November as no school vember because there were so many days out of school in Oregon. Uh, With graduation rates in Oregon among the worst in the country, parents say the question quickly becomes, is it because kids don't go to school as much as kids in other states? Absolutely, says Zordel, the state board uh, member. Absolutely. I think there's a correlation between graduation rates, not giving our children enough instruction time. She was the only member of that group uh, who talked to KGW about this issue, saying we called and emailed every other member um, of the Oregon Board of Education. Not a single one responded. This isn't rocket science, says this board member. The problem is there isn't a will from the governor or the legislature to do anything to improve graduation rates. They're making up excuses. They're delaying. I'm tired of it. I don't need a proclamation that says graduation rates are important. Show me it's important. Well, the truth is, if you extend the uh, number of days that uh, students are in school, you also expand the number of days that teachers are in the classroom And I suspect that Oregon is wrestling with being able to pay teachers what they demand for those additional days. And that may be the uh, the issue that prevents the discussion that really needs to take place. Well, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We're going to take a quick break. When we uh, come back, we're going to talk about a phenomenon. Young people 
and for that matter, not so young people refusing to grow up. We're talking about, you know, 30 something, 40, 50, 60, kind of get a pattern there. Quick break. We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Now, you might remember having um, heard about the 30-year-old whose parents actually had to take him to court to get him to vacate their home. Well, he's decided, yes, of course, there's a court order, but he's decided, yes, he is going to move out of his home. But only after he was engaged in an interview that paid him some $3,000. Uh, and he now can afford to buy the boxes he said he couldn't afford, and he's looking for a comfortable place with Internet that doesn't cost very much. Um, a rather interesting story, but I noted Peggy Noonan wrote a piece on um, the fact that too many of us are unwilling to grow up, whether or not it's living in your parents' basement or just taking on the full responsibility and the weight of adulthood. But she writes that if adults won't grow up, nobody will. From Facebook to Harvey Weinstein, America's scandals amount to a giant crisis of maturity. I want to write about something I think is a problem in our society, she says, that is, in fact, at the heart of many of the recent scandals and yet is obscure enough that it doesn't have a name. It has to do with forgetting who you are. It has to do with refusing to be fully adult and neglecting to take on each day the maturity, grace and self-discipline that are expected of adults and part of their job. That job is to pattern adulthood for those coming up who are looking always for how to do it, how to be fully formed man, a fully grown woman. It has to do with not being able to fully reckon with your size, not because it's small, but because it is uh, big. I see more people trembling under the weight of who they are. Laura Ingram got in trouble for publicly mocking one of the student gun control activists of Parkland, Florida. She's been unjustly targeted for boycotts, but it's um, it's fair to say she was wrong in what she said and said, uh, said it because she didn't remember who she is. She is a successful and a veteran media figure, host of a cable show that bears her name. As such, she is a setter of the sound of our culture as it discusses politics. When you're that person, you don't smack around a 17-year-old, even if, maybe especially if, he is obnoxious in his presentation of his public self. He's a kid. There's not infrequently obnoxious, but... Uh, they're not infrequently obnoxious because they're not fully mature. He's small. You're big. There's a power imbalance. It is uh, six months since the reckoning that began with the New York Times expose of Harvey Weinstein. One by one, they fell. Men in media, often journalism, and their stories bear at least in part a general theme. They were mostly great successes, middle-aged, and so natural uh, leaders of the young. But they treated the young as prey. They didn't respect them, in part because they didn't respect themselves. They didn't see their true size, their role, or they ignored it. It should not be hard to act as if you are who you are, yet somehow it increased increasingly appears to be. There is diminished incentive for people to act like adults. Everyone wants to be cool. No one wants to be uh, pretentious. No one wants to be grim, unhip, to be passed by in terms of style. And our culture has always honored the young, but it has not always honored immaturity. I have spent the past few years, again, quoting Peggy Noonan, uh, watching old videos of the civil rights era, the King era, and there is something unexpectedly poignant in them. When you see those involved in that momentous time, you notice they dressed as adults with dignity. They presented themselves with self-respect. Those who moved against segregation and racial indignity went forward in adult attire, suits, dresses, coats, ties, hats, as if adulthood was something to which to aspire, as if a claiming of just rights required a showing of gravity. 
Look at the pictures of Martin Luther King Jr. speaking, the pictures of those marching across the Edmund Pettus Bridge, of those in attendance that day when George Wallace stood in the schoolhouse door and then stepped aside to force uh, to the force of the federal government. And suddenly the University of Alabama was integrated. Even the first students who went in, all young, acted and presented themselves as adults. Of course, they won. Who could stop such people? I miss their style and seriousness. What we are stuck with now is Mark Zuckerberg's. Facebook's failings are now famous and so far include but uh, are perhaps not limited to misusing, sharing and scraping a uh, rather scrapping a private uh, user data, selling space to Russia propagandists in the 2016 campaign, playing games with political content, starving journalism of ad revenues, increasing polarization and turning eager users into unknowing product. The signal fact of Mr. Zuckerberg is that he is supremely gifted in one area, monetizing technical expertise by marrying uh, it to a canny sense of human weakness. Beyond that, what a shallow and banal figure. He, too, appears to have difficulties coming to terms with who he is. Perhaps he hopes to keep you, too, from coming to terms with it by literally dressing as a child in T-shirt, hoodies and jeans, soft clothes, the kind of five-year-old favor. In interviews, he presents an oddly blank look, as if perhaps his audiences will take blankness for innocence. As has been said before, he is like one of those hollow-eyed busts of forgotten Caesars you see in museums. But he is no child. He is a giant uh, bestride the age, a titan, one of the richest men not only in the world, but in the history of the world. His power is awesome. His public reputation is now damaged, and about this he is very concerned. The Onion recently headlined that he was preparing for his questioning in Congress by studying up on the private data of congressmen. The comic Albert Brooks tweeted, I sent Mark Zuckerberg my entire medical history just to save him some time. Well, his current problems may have yielded a moment of promise, however. Tim Cook of Apple, in an impressive and sober interview with Recode's Kara Swisher and MSNBC's Chris Hayes, said something startling, almost revolutionary. Privacy to us is a human right. This was stunning because it was the exact opposite of what Silicon Valley has been telling us since social media's inception, which is privacy is dead Get over it. Some variation on that statement has been made over and over by Silicon Valley pioneers, and they say it blithely, cavalierly, with no apparent sense of tragedy. Because they don't do tragedy, they do children's clothes. Perhaps what is happening with Facebook will usher in the first serious rethinking in terms of the law on what has been lost and gained since social media began. The public infatuation with big tech and Silicon Valley is over and has been for some time. Congress should grill Mr. Zuckerberg closely on how he took what people gave him and used it. Many viewers would greatly enjoy a line of questioning along these lines. Is your product your service, one without which we can't live like Edison's electricity? It seems to me you are a visionary, sir, and we would give you uh, and we should give you your just reward and make you a utility. Mr. Zuckerberg invited Congress to regulate him, wondering why it has occurred to me it's because he knows Congress is too stupid to do it effectively. He buys lobbyists to buy them. He knows how craven, unserious and insecure they are and would have no particular respect for them, nor would he have particular reason to. I hope they are adults. I hope they don't showboat or yell, but really probe carefully. More than ever, the adults have to rise to the fore and set the template for what's admirable. If we don't, those who follow us will be less admirable even than us, and those after them less admirable still. That would be a tragedy, wouldn't it, she asks. Again, suggesting that um, 
If adults don't grow up, then nobody will. And the residual effect from one generation to another um, will be rather startling. Carolyn Lewis also raised the question of relativism and how that's led to our violent society. We're going to take a break here in just a few moments. And when we return, we'll talk more about that and how to turn the tide. Again, uh, moral relativism led to violent society. How to Turn the Tide, Carolyn Lewis offers some suggestions. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, brought to you in part today by Zero Res. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to the final segment of The Georgine Rice Show. There's been a lot of question about uh, the violent nature of our society and whether or not we can look to the gun as an explanation as to why there's so much violence. But Carolyn Lewis suggests in a piece uh, written just today, or at least published today, that some pose that one of our core societal problems is gun violence. Yet violence is not the problem, but rather the consequence of the problem. And she suggests the actual problem exists in a false idea called moral relativism, which basically means that morals and values vary between individuals. This philosophy posits that each person has to find his or her uh, zim or zur own truth uh, that may differ from everyone else's. Unchangeable truth becomes irrelevant, replaced instead by ever-changing feelings. Yet when we become the sole arbiters of what is just and good, personal pleasure and success, often gained at the expense of other people, remains as life's core goal. Living for success and pleasure, however, breeds a society of selfishness and narcissism. In our culture, this narcissism has been leveraged in a large way by social media that rewards, likes, and quantifies a person's popularity by displaying statistics on how many friends a person has. Thus, we compete with ourselves and others to be the most liked, most successful person in our circle of connections. And because right and wrong are mostly irrelevant, we pursue self-fulfillment in any way that seems right to us, regardless of whether it's actually moral. When someone questions what we have concluded to be right for us, we become an offended victim. Unfortunately, moral relativism, in which we make our own rules and become victims if we can't have our own way, has infiltrated every area of society, including our education system, the discipline of psychology, and our legal system. No longer is it you killed someone, go to prison. It is you killed someone because you were a victim of bullying. But should should appeals to victimhood absolve a person of capital murder? The title of Richard Weaver's 1948 book says it best, Ideas Have Consequences. And the idea of moral relativism has certainly had its consequences. As Russian writer Fyodor Dostoevsky said, without God, all things are permitted, all things including, of course, violence and murder. What did postmodernists think would result from teaching children that they were random results of meaningless primordial sludge and that everyone else is as meaningless as they are? Why are we surprised when the violence of our society, which gives the strong power over the weak, when we have modeled that model that with the legalization of abortion? Or why do we assume that allowing children to watch Hollywood's glamorized violence, murder and killing would have no effect? Or that video games that reward players for killing people would somehow produce virtue? Does good fruit ever come from a bad plant? The Supreme Court's first uh, uh, removed prayer in 1962 and the Bible in 63 from public schools in order to be neutral. In reality, these rulings made morals irrelevant to the education process. But would a, would a world where children are taught do not murder, do not steal or honor your parents be such a horrible place? Wouldn't society, regardless of religious affiliation or non-affiliation, benefit from such educational instruction? 
Well, this leads to the chief question. What is education? Is education merely the memorization of facts and figures, or is education at its core the formation of character, of discipline, of honesty, and of treating people with kindness and equity? The Supreme Court's decisions from the 1960s not only removed God from the educational process, but separated being who we are from doing what we do. As a result, education has become less about the formation of character and more about producing results. Yet human beings are comprised of both body and soul, of being and doing. Re-envisioning the education process as a place that teaches virtue and forms character and returning society to a place that affirms rather than derides values stands as the first step to reviewing our culture from violence and reviving it. Keep Faith in America, a growing movement across the country, has begun to take this step toward a virtuous society by communicating that prayer and faith act as the foundation of our country. Several states are also standing for values. Recently, for example, Arizona's legislature passed a bill promoting our nation's motto, In God We Trust, as well as Arizona's motto, God Enriches. The Arizona bill also emphasizes public displays of the Constitution and founding documents. Tennessee passed a similar bill that promotes In God We Trust to be displayed in public schools. Alabama followed with a bill that allows In God We Trust to be displayed on public buildings. The Alabama legislature also proposed a bill for the public display of the Ten Commandments. And the Louisiana governor signed yesterday a bill into law requiring public schools to display In God We Trust. Well, these bills and laws are welcome ones, but true, uh, lasting changes won't happen from the top down. The grassroots must lead. Ideas have consequences, and the morally bankrupt theory of moral relativism has yielded huge problems for our culture and our society. Growing movements among the people and in states, state legislatures that acknowledge a moral order will help us return to a moral society, a civil society, and one in which we can honor one another. That leaves a big question. Is that true? Well, finally, Jaylene Hinkle, she shocked the women's soccer community when she made the decision to decline a call-up from the U.S. women's national team last June. I mean, what soccer player, what woman would not want to be called up by the U.S. women's national team as she was last June? But her decision came shortly after the U.S. soccer announced that the squad was going to wear jerseys in honor of LGBTQ Pride Month during their June friendlies. Well, these were there was rather speculation at the time that she would, uh, as a devout and outspoken Christian, was withdrawing from the team because she didn't want to wear a pride jersey. And Hinkle appeared to confirm that this week in an interview with Christian talk show, The 700 Club. Hinkle extensively discussed her faith and explained how the announcement of the pride jury uh, jersey rather led her decision to withdraw from the team saying, I just felt so convicted by, in my spirit that it wasn't my job to wear this jersey. I gave myself three days to just seek and pray and determine what he was asking me to do in this situation. I knew in my spirit I was doing the right thing. I knew I was being obedient, end quote. Well, Hinkle, who uh, competes for the North Carolina Courage in the National Women's Soccer League, has not received a call-up to the U.S. women's national team since withdrawing from the team last year. The U.S. women's national team has multiple high-profile players that are openly gay, and the team has a significant number of lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender fans. U.S. soccer has made a concerted effort to uh, reach out to those fans, in part by wearing the LGBTQ Pride Month jersey last year. When North Carolina took on the Portland Thorns in Portland on on Wednesday, fans didn't hesitate to express their opinions about Hinkle, a woman of faith who stood on principle. Hinkle was booed when her name was announced in the lineup ahead of the game, and one fan brought a two-stick 
I'm not sure what that is, but a two-stick to the match with the words personal reasons written in rainbow letters, a reference to the official reason that was used when Hinkle declined to call up, or rather the call up, last June. Well, um, this young woman exercised a bit of courage in living according to her faith, and it's unfortunate that expressing a particular political view uh, is necessary in order to engage in the thing that she makes her living by doing. Well, tomorrow is uh, Friday, and, well, fortunately, we're going to lighten up, so we're looking forward to turning our attention to the lighter side of the news, and I hope you will join us for just that. I want to thank James Blind for engineering and producing today's program, and thank you for making The Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Good night. Thanks for listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G. Rice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.